0: Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project. I'm Matt Harmon, WJP's Communications Director, and today's host of a conversation with Rachel Kleinfeld, a Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the Founding CEO of the Truman National Security Project. Her new book, The Savage Order, explores extreme violence in democracies, why it comes about, why it persists, and successful case studies for change. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to Rule of Law Talk for more vital conversations like this one. Extreme violence is crippling democracies around the globe, and not because of war. In fact, 83% of all violent deaths occur outside of conflict zones, and in 2015, more people died violently in Brazil. Than in serious civil war. When extreme violence is rampant in a country, change can seem impossible. But in her new book, A Savage Order, Rachel Kleinfeld sets out to learn why extreme violence plagues some democracies and not others, and what countries have done to successfully recover and reclaim security. Rachel, welcome to Rule of Law Talk.
1: Great to be here, Matt.
0: Um, so first of all, I just want to say that this is a great book thanks so much for writing it um and uh, i really enjoyed it very much At, at our work at the world justice project we look a lot at the outcomes of justice systems uh but it's hard for us to look at causation and uh harder even still to look at uh ways to move forward and and create positive change so this book does uh does that um I thought I'd first ask just how how did this book come about for you after a a long time researching violence and security?
1: Well, you know, I've worked around the field of violence and security for almost two decades now. But a few years ago, I started working under the auspices of the UK's DFID, uh, uh, their aid agency. Uh, And they really were interested in how they helped violent, conflict-affected, fragile states Um, because they're putting a lot of money into those states and they wanted to know how they could get better. And so I convened a conference actually with the World Justice Project and Stanford University. And we looked at all the literature, all the research. We brought experts from all over the world to try to figure out how do various forms of violence get better? And it turned out we knew quite a lot. And we put together a literature review with Uh, how to fight gang violence and electoral violence and organized criminal violence. But when I asked the room of experts, okay, so how do you get a corrupt police department to adopt a well-known proven policing technique that we know works? You could just hear crickets in the room. And I thought, okay, that's the question I need to answer. I need to know what, what do you do when the foxes are guarding the hen house?
0: I see. So, uh, let's just cut to the chase. Tell me what, what's the big, uh, Uh, the big takeaway from this book, what did you find out?
1: Well, so first of all, I hadn't written a book that I intended to have a big takeaway. I'd I'd meant to write a typical think tank book, you know, with a lot of different cases, a lot of different kinds of violence and a lot of different solutions. But the same themes kept recurring over and over in the research. And as I was trying to put them all together and figure out what the story was, I started doing the historical case, which was looking at the U.S. after our civil war. And I wanted to look at why the Wild West, which was astronomically violent, violent like Columbia during the height of its drug war, why it got better so quickly in just a couple of decades while the US South got more and more violent until by 1892, you had someone being lynched in the South every 36 hours. And that turned out to be the key to the other cases and and the sort of key to the big idea, which was that some states really are just weak, which is what common wisdom says. And they're like the Wild West. And I tell the story of Theodore Roosevelt, the future president, who had his boat stolen when he was running a cattle ranch in South Dakota. And to get the perpetrators of this theft, he personally, as the sheriff, uh, had to put together a posse, forge a frozen river, catch the criminals two weeks later, go over land for three more weeks to, to get them to a prison, Um you know, in a, in a weak state without many uh, institutions, that's what you're talking about. And so it's no surprise that you get a lot of murder and a lot of people taking the law into their own hands. But the South was a different story. And the South was the key to what I saw in the rest of the world. And it's something that I started calling privilege violence, because privilege is made up of two words. Uh, in Latin, it stands for private law. And what I saw was politicians who thought that they couldn't win an honest election, would use violence, violence perpetrated by normal people for their own reasons, to help remain in power. And in order to remain in power while helping violent groups in the US South, it was the KKK and other Knight Rider groups who helped drive down opposition voting and drive out the voters who wouldn't vote for Confederate politicians. In order to give those groups impunity, when they got into power, they needed to politicize their justice institutions and weaken them. And so you saw a pattern of weak institutions, but there was a reason they were weak. They were being deliberately weakened by politicians who profited from that weakness.
0: Interesting. Um, one, something that really struck me in uh, just your introduction was reading about uh, the effect of violence on people. Um, I I think it might be easy for some of us who live in safer environments to um, imagine this is a problem that happens elsewhere. It's interesting that you looked at the American South and West, Um, but uh, the violence that happened then, the violence that's happening now in uh, Central and South America, uh, what what does that violence do to people?
1: Well, so we already knew that violence is one of the fastest ways to get sent back to the beginning of development uh, of any sort. It causes immense poverty. Um, it also kills primary breadwinners. Men, young men particularly, are the most likely to perpetrate violence, but also the biggest victims. And so in Mexico right now, you have about 100,000 men who, who would have existed who don't. And that means hundreds of thousands of kids who don't have a father, don't have a primary breadwinner. And we knew that if you witness violence as a child, it can can harm you, not for all children, but for less resilient children. It can cause PTSD that makes them more impulsive, more likely to commit violence themselves later on. But some scientists now think it alters genes, actually. And this isn't proven. It's a theory that they're working on. But if it's true, it causes epigenetic changes. And that means that um, that it can be passed down to future generations so that witnessing violence while young for some people might be something that their grandchildren would have the same impulsivity, the same quickness to anger that um, you would see in a first generation PTSD survivor.
0: Wow, that is surprising. When we're talking about violence here, are we talking about war or are we talking about uh, crime?
1: Well, that was one of the surprises to me. When I set out to research the book, I wanted to look at places that had the biggest number of violent deaths. And I had started out assuming that that would be conflict zones. It turns out that's not true at all, that most violent death, 83%, as you said in your intro, seems to happen outside of conflict zones. We're talking about places like Mexico or Brazil that um, are democracies where a lot of people are killed by the state in Rio de Janeiro. When the current president of Brazil was the, um, was the politician who led Rio de Janeiro, one in five killings in that city was by a policeman, um, and by fellow citizens.
0: Wow. Um, I, I know that you traveled pretty far and wide for, uh, the research for this book. What did, what did that look like? How was your process?
1: So I basically went in with an inductive sort of a a method, which means I muck around in the question for a long time. I don't go in with a developed idea of what I'm trying to find. And then I talk to everyone I can talk to, warlords, business people, activists, union members, journalists, and I read everything I can on on the country and what's going on, including novels. I find that um, novels often give you more insight into how people are feeling about a war, war-like situation or a conflict situation than just a social science. And then I come away from it all, t- try to digest and, and go back for more. So I went and did a paired case study on every continent on earth that was settled. Um, I looked at one country that was extremely violent and had gotten better, and one country that was extremely violent and hadn't gotten better, or in some cases, as in Ghana and Nigeria, a country that should have been violent, given all of the uh, uh, the fissures within the society, but didn't become so, and tried to figure out why the differences between these states.
0: You looked at uh, Colombia and Mexico. What did you learn by comparing those two societies?
1: So, you know, first of all, one of the things that people say about violence is that it's cultural. You hear that a lot, that, oh, that's a violent culture and one of the things that these cases showed was that that's just bunk. That uh, Colombia, for instance, was one of the more violent places on earth, um, then stopped being one of the most violent places on earth as Venezuela started climbing in the ranks. Venezuela and Colombia are neighbors. They have quite similar cultures. Um, you couldn't explain the difference in the change by looking at culture. So that was very, very clear as a, as a difference. Another difference that I found was that people tend to blame violence on poverty. Not at all the case. Most of the most violent countries are middle-income countries, like Mexico, like Colombia, like South Africa, Nigeria. Uh, these, are, these are countries that have enough money to have world-class infrastructure in parts of their countries. And that was a key, that the inequality in these countries and the polarization between parts of the citizenry was a lot of what allowed the violence to uh, deepen and continue for so long
0: so um so in looking at these pair countries you kind of map out uh in almost a step-by-step way how democracies can become extremely violent um and so i'd like to hear more about that but my first question about it is uh can this happen to any democracy or is this only certain kinds of democracies uh, with certain weaknesses where you see this happening uh, historically
1: So I saw it happening in democracies that were highly unequal and highly polarized. And I don't think that's an accident. I think those things are very important. What you saw was a three-step process. First, you had politicians who faced a very polarized electorate where they might not win. And if they didn't win, the repercussions because of the polarization could be quite serious. They could end up in jail. They could end up uh, in exile or even killed. So they really wanted to hold on to power. And they thought that they couldn't do that through regular elections because of the level of polarization within the electorate. And so they turned to non-state violent groups for support in the way that Southern Confederate politicians turned to the Ku Klux Klan and allowed them to wage their racist violence in exchange for that helping drive down opponents um, voting at, at election time. You saw politicians partnering with gangs for that exact kind of electoral violence. You saw them partnering with drug cartels for campaign funding, as in Colombia, during uh, the height of the Cali cartel years and the Medellin cartel years. Um, You saw them partnering with violent groups just for bribes and personal enrichment. They then had to weaken their security agencies because if their police were professional, if their courts w- worked very well and so on, they couldn't provide impunity to these violent groups, and that was the implicit promise. So they deliberately weaken their security agencies. They make them dependent on politicians for, uh, for hiring, for firing, for promotion, They make the budgets quite small and dependent on political whim so that these agencies are constantly having to go beg to the politicians for enough money. And by um, making merit such a small part of how one gets ahead in these agencies, they cause good people to leave and they cause people who are really desperate for the job to seek those jobs and to be willing to put up with the politicization. And by the way, this doesn't just happen in other countries. My great-grandfather was a was a detective in the New York City police force at the turn of the last century. He had to leave his job to make political speeches quite regularly to stay in, in his job with the Democratic machine that controlled New York City back in the 1800s and early 1900s. So it's just a pretty common pattern. But what happens next was the surprising part. So you have these these uh, politicians that are working with non-state violent groups, and you have these Police forces that aren't particularly good at their jobs and that become brutal and they become corrupt and they become predatory. The middle class can buy their way out of that problem. The middle class lives in safer neighborhoods, they live in gated communities, they buy private security. So you see uh, in all the Spanish speaking countries of Central America, for instance, private security outnumbers police. But the poor can't do that. And so what happens in poor and marginalized areas is that gangs and mafias and vigilante groups come in and they say, we can protect you against the police and also against other gangs and mafias and vigilante groups. And so they extort their way into some social legitimacy. And that allows the violence to just extraordinarily increase within a society.
0: Uh, Does this happen uh, quickly or over a matter of generations? Uh, what, What kind of timeline are we looking at?
1: It can be fast and it can be slow. Uh, Robert Putnam f- famously described the social trust in northern Italy that uh, was in co- was really important for the northern Italians to have such a better economy and um, a better democracy, a better quality of democracy than South Italy. But I trace the story of one city where the mafia moves in in a northern Italian town near the Swiss Alps. And in, in a matter of years, it becomes distrustful, um, the mob takes over the democracy, destroys the city council. So this can happen pretty quickly. Um,
0: so uh, it seems almost um, uh, impossible to turn back the clock if if society starts to descend like this. Um, how can democracies turn this around? Can they at all? Um, uh, but if they can, how, how do they do it?
1: So that was the hopeful part of the book. Part one is the problem and part two is the solution and, and part two is bigger. <laughs> um, what I found was that countries can turn this around and cities and states. I looked at different levels of violence and they can turn it around um, beginning with the middle class. And that was a surprise because usually when other countries try to help violent countries, we focus on perpetrators of violence. You know, How do you get people to stop joining gangs? How do you get people um, out of terrorist groups or how do you fight the terrorists and we focus on the victims and helping the victims but it turned out the key was the middle class in these countries because these are still democracies the middle class had to be touched by the violence and then they had to decide that instead of voting for more repression and enabling the state to continue a repressive policing um, uh, structure Instead, they had to vote for more inclusion and a a democracy that really worked and, and followed the rule of law. If they could vote for that, and if a politician was willing to run on that platform, society had a chance. But that politician had to be a really good politician and had to do three things that didn't go easily together. First, when the state was extremely weak and the police were still corrupt and so on, the courts were still weak, they had to make what I call dirty deals with the violent groups. Basically... They had to get the violent groups to give the country some breathing room by putting down their arms. But without much to offer uh, and without much ability to force them to do so, they basically had to offer some impunity to get that to happen. If that was allowed to stand, the country would become even more violent and even less trusted by its citizenry. So they had to very quickly move to create a more inclusive state, a more just state, to make people feel that they were not um, being left behind by the country, but that the country cared about all its citizens. And finally, they had to fight the the nefarious forces, and so they had to strengthen the state pretty quickly to be able to fight back against the criminals and rebels and so on. That's a hard trio, and often the same politician couldn't do all three. Often you'd have a national-level politician, as in Colombia, where Uribe could fight the FARC and... Um, fight the guerrilla groups, and make a dirty deal with the paramilitaries. But he couldn't really do the inclusion part. The mayors of Bogota, Medellin, Cali were the ones who were more inclusive. But if you could get your politicians to to do those three things, society could start self-policing and could start reestablishing the norms against violence that all societies depend upon and could really bring itself back from the brink.
0: Uh, You said that the, the middle class was a key um, tell me more about that. Tell me how the middle class is uh, uh, is key both to uh, the increasing violence and also to decreasing violence in a society.
1: So these societies are highly unequal, and it's very easy for the middle class to write off violence as happening to people who are very different from them. And, you know, you live in Seattle. I split my time between New Mexico and, and Washington, D.C., Think about our own societies. There's actually quite a lot of violence. I traced uh, in Washington, D.C., the violence that happens on the northwestern quadrant where uh, most professionals live and work. You get maybe one murder a year, maybe two. On the other side of the city, somebody's being killed every week. And, And so very different levels of violence, depending on who you are and where you are. So the middle class can ignore the problem for a very long time. And they can also write it off as just criminals killing criminals. And you see that over and over, even in Mexico, where here in America, we see these sky high rates of violence. We wonder how anyone can live in some of these places within Mexico. There's a strong narrative that the people who die are criminals who are involved with the drug violence themselves. That narrative is never true, by the way. It's it's always innocent people who are getting caught up in the violence as well. But because of that narrative, middle class folks can distance themselves for a long time. The violent groups eventually tend to have fights within themselves, mafia wars or drug cartels fighting over turf or gangs fighting over turf. And if that touches the middle class, then they can choose which way to go. Often, some politicians who want to deepen the existing order and hold on to their privilege will try to sell them on some form of repression, whether it's uh, zero-tolerance policies, three strikes and you're out, uh, putting more people in jail who seem to be tied to gangs, iron fist kind of policies in Latin America. And the track record of these is horrific. They, they always backfire, and I track that in the book, why they backfire, and how they backfire. But they're very, very popular. It's hard to um, beat that kind of a message at the polls. So the middle class, if they vote that way, tends to enable an already complicit state to deepen its complicity in the violence.
0: It's interesting. I, uh, For a while, I lived in uh, Baltimore, and you would hear a lot of uh, well-meaning middle class white people um, talking about this unfortunate narrative about Baltimore being a violent city. Um, and whereas, you know, our day-to-day lives there, uh, were very safe and it was a charming place. And, and I actually did love living there, but, um, but he had on the news every night, there were, uh, four or five murders per day happening in, in, not a very big city. Um, and I think that issue of inequality, uh, is one that really, uh, is important to think about. And I think that you draw that connection uh, really successfully in the book. Um, maybe even the example you give of, of, of just right now of Washington, D.C. or Seattle. Um, we see, at the same time, we see violence. We see um, more and more homeless people on the streets and the, the idea of income inequality becoming a very real thing in our cities. And I, this a long way of saying, I'm curious if you want to, comment on where you think the United States is along this road of uh, getting better or getting worse in terms of violence, security, safety?
1: Sure. So in all the countries that face privileged violence, it's like a broken vase. You can see the fissures, and a politician can always press on those cracks. And so these are fragile societies. Even after they heal, even after they get much better, it's always easy for them to go the other direction. And I would say America right now is really on a precipice. We are, the good news is, we are at the lowest level of violence that we've had since the 1950s, practically. If you took out the four uh, most violent cities in the country, if you took out Baltimore, as you mentioned, uh, Detroit, New Orleans, and St. Louis, we would be at 1950s levels of violence. So it's an extraordinarily positive point. However, we're really teetering in a bad way. There, there's a man named Randy Roth, an academic from Ohio, who did a beautiful book called American Homicide, tracing homicide in America from the founding. And what he found was that in the United States, it correlates quite closely with two variables, how many people say they think government is crooked and how much trust they have for their fellow citizens across different groups. And um, right now, America is looking bad on those two variables. And so from a low point, we could be moving toward more pipe bombs and synagogue killings and, and so on if we can't get our act together. And and I should say, I believe in human agency. I don't believe these things are inevitable. You can have a politician pressing on those fissures. You can have a history of this kind of privileged violence. And if people refuse to fall back into the easy polarizing answers we can remain a peaceful society. But it's a close call right now.
0: When you talked about the, uh, the American South, uh, the post-Civil War period, uh, and you talk about the, the violence there and the, and the Ku Klux Klan and other um, organizations like it. Um, it makes me think about um, the, the, the racism there and the anti-immigrant fervor um, that represented in in later iterations of the Klan, at least. Um, Do you see uh, immigration crisis that we see in Europe, especially happening right now, affecting um, or having something to do with all of this? Uh,
1: Absolutely. I mean, people people are looking for scapegoats and they're looking at immigrants as one of those scapegoated groups. And you're right that the Ku Klux Klan, we tend to think of them as an anti-African American group, which they were, in their first iteration, but they came back as anti-Jewish, anti-immigrant, and so on. Um, to me, the the goal of a more inclusive democracy that follows the rule of law is not just because that's the kind of society I'd like to live in. It's because that's what the research shows is going to create a safe society. Immigrants, for all they get scapegoated in America, are actually the least likely to commit violent acts of any other um, group much, much less likely than, uh, young white males or young immigrant males. And so uh, we scapegoat them at our peril. Those are the most safe parts of our country, actually.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. Um, I, there's so much in this book to talk about. Um, I'm trying to keep this brief. Um, what should policymakers do? What, what lessons can we take from the book and apply them to, um, formalizing any kinds of reforms that may be uh, leading us down the right path?
1: So I think there's reforms at home and there's reforms we can do for overseas. Here, here at home, where we face this problem, we can push for a society that treats our people equally. So that means we don't under-police or over-police our uh, more marginalized parts of our country. We give them good policing. Um, so right now, we tend to, to leave those places without streetlights, without um, the best in police, or else we over-police, we do stop and frisk, we do all sorts of uh, methods that are proven to fail, um, and also to exacerbate community anger, and therefore provide the police with less intelligence that they need to catch um, the more violent criminals. So we know what to do, and we need to start doing it in terms of policing in our own country. We also need to start providing the resources that all parts of the country need. Highly, highly unequal countries breed a sense of distance amongst the people, and that allows bad things to happen to people in places that seem far away, but as you said, in Seattle and Baltimore are not very far away. So we need to find ways to tie our cities together. In Medellin, for instance, they did simple things. They had a concert series that was in different parts of town. So if you wanted to hear that band... You might have to travel to a neighborhood that you hadn't been to before and um, they had christmas lights that went along the river which was a place where there were a lot of killings um, down near the bus depot and the casinos and so on but with the christmas lights it became a family event to go to the river and walk and look at the christmas lights so they did things to tie the city together we can do the same in our own country in terms of overseas policy So overseas, it's a different issue. If we're trying to help other countries that are facing this kind of violence, the first thing we can do is do no harm. So we can stop supplying them with lethal security aid that they might be using against their own people. We can be a lot smarter about how we do our security assistance and our development assistance to not support the complicity. We can also tighten our own financial regulations, our beneficial ownership laws, things like that, because a lot of the reason that um, overseas politicians might be complicit with drug cartels or other violent groups is for money, and they launder that money through the West, through U.S. banking systems, property systems, London, and so on. And we can do a lot to stop that. And then we can do more to be transparent in how we help members of those countries help themselves So we can provide development aid and provide them with the knowledge of where that aid is going and how much we're providing so that people can become more active citizens. We can help their middle class um, to organize and to come together to create their own solutions across polarized uh, communities. So I think there's a lot to to do and a lot that can be done. Most of it not that expensive, and a lot of it can be done at home.
0: Um, When you look at an example of somebody like venezuela who really is almost a broken society right now uh they come in uh last and in terms of the rule of law in in the last couple of the world justice projects rule of law index um we're looking i don't know close to um a civil war almost um is there really a way out of it for them
1: Venezuela is a really hard, hard case, and it's because it's barely still a democracy. This this book is about ways out for democracies, and the first step is to vote a new group of politicians in. In Venezuela, they had the chance to do that for a long time, but the opposition had real trouble coming together in a useful way. And now the government has really closed off most forms of true democratic uh, voting, I think that's still possible in Venezuela if the opposition could really come together, but it would have to be a more negotiated exit. I think they need uh, to work more with the military, which is very much in cahoots with a number of the drug groups to uh, to work their way out of it.
0: Um, maybe a a nice way to end this would be for you to talk about a a country that has come back uh, an example of, of, uh, of real success.
1: Sure. So the Republic of Georgia used to look like Libya looks today, right after the fall of the Soviet union, it descended into a civil war. There were urban gangs and also any kid could just put on a leather jacket and act as if they were a member of a gang and extort people. So there was also just freelance violence, um, all over the countryside, there were bombings and rapes and murders And the country was just a mess. It also had two areas that had separated and uh, were being stoked by Russia to be separate countries. And there's still breakaway regions that have broken away from the main of Georgia. So you look at Libya today and you think, how will this country ever come together? And that was what the Republic of Georgia looked like in the early 90s. But they made a series of deals with the Russians, with the warlords, to help them reduce the violence. And then they built up a stronger state to help fight the remaining violence. They had a democratic revolution that brought to power uh, politicians who really wanted to fight. They got rid of the mafias and they used policing powers to create a state that had a just police force, an honest police force. And then as that government became a little repressive, a little overbearing, and the book talks about how common that is, how often um, you have a Jekyll and Hyde kind of Political leader who's not really, a, who's a reformer, but who becomes less reform minded as they get uh, excited about the powers of the state. But in George's case, the citizens were wise to that. They didn't just blindly follow the person they had once called a reformer. They voted that person out of office. And bit by bit, they've gotten so much crime out of that society, so much violence out of that society, that its homicide rates are on par with the United States. And it is a safe place to walk around alone at night, when I was doing my research there, I would take beautiful walks through the city in the evening. Um, That's what Libya could become. And it's a real success. And it's a real possibility if we're willing to do the work and and help the people help themselves.
0: Wonderful, great story. Um, Anything else that you wanted to uh, share about this book?
1: You know, I think my favorite part of the book was doing the research and meeting the courageous people who are working in their own countries to make it better. It's a real book of human agency that says nothing is inevitable. It's not inevitable that peaceful countries will stay peaceful, but nor is it inevitable that violent countries will remain violent. Things change and things change because people take it into their hands to make that change happen.
0: Some good news. Thank you. Um, Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you again.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Matt. Take care.